Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, it's Michael Kingswood coming at you again with story time. Hope you everybody had a good week since we last talked to each other. It's been a pretty decent, hectic one around here. Um, not a whole lot to talk about writing-wise. Well, a little bit. I... Uh, did two more of my uh, author narration edition audiobooks. Got the two more of those squared away. I think I told you I put up uh, Passing in the Night based on reading to you here. And I uh, got that up on all the various audiobook sites. You can find it everywhere now, including my website. Um, and went ahead and revamped two of the earlier other shorts that I read before not so well back when I still was figuring out how to not completely suck at audio stuff. Uh, Falling Softly and Who Ate My Sock both uh, put those up and has been processed being processed and quality checked right now but should be out into the uh, audiobook ether here shortly. So that's good. Um, aside from that Plugging along, man. It's been a lot of running or running and churning the last week. Uh, this feels like nonstop, just with <laughs> everything that's been going on. Um, but it's also been good too. Uh, hopefully, you guys have been doing well as well. I won't uh, take up too much time here, hemming and hawing. Let's just get straight back to the story, shall we? Um, last we met, our Esteemed heroes in the Pericles Conspiracy, uh, Jeremy had just had his mysterious meeting in Central Park with the guy in the uh, trench coat and in the uh, uh, hat, whatever the hell you call those things, the, the cool hats from back in the 30s, uh, uh, whatever the hell they're called, uh, it's escaping me right now, and basically told him, hey man, go back to Keto because you missed something, so... Jeremy basically told his boss, I'm out. I don't care about your Zhukov story. And the boss is now worried. And we'll see what goes on next. Talk at you after we do some reading. The Pericles Conspiracy. Written by me. Read by me. I still apologize for that. Chapter 8. La Casa Blanca. Another bar in Quito. This one, La Casa Blanca, actually was an old white house in the southwestern suburbs of the city. It was a charming construction, two stories tall with a wide wraparound porch, but when Jeremy stepped inside, the quaint charm was replaced by the usual modern accoutrements. The first floor had obviously been gutted to make room for the large bar in the middle of the room and the booths lining every wall. Swinging doors in the back no doubt led into the kitchen, and there was a spiral staircase leading upstairs to Jeremy's right. Even though it was a Sunday night, the place was bustling. 
Every stool at the bar was filled, and several groups of patrons dressed in club attire stood around talking. Waitresses moved through the crowd with practiced ease, balancing trays full of drinks or food over their heads as they made their way to the order's destinations. Loud music, the kind with a heavy beat but not much in the way of melody, pumped out of speakers in the walls, and a few couples were dancing off to the left on a small dance floor. Jeremy grinned. This was his kind of place. He arrived in Quito early Thursday morning, having flown through the night. Bad turbulence prevented him from getting much sleep on the plane, but he had long since learned that the secret to adjusting to a new location and or time zone after a long flight was just to stay up until normal bedtime at wherever he found himself. It made for a long and tiring day, but it did the trick. All the same, he was just as happy to not receive word from his contact with the broad nose until this morning. Jeremy had not gone out of his way to announce his presence in town, but he had not exactly hidden it either. It was partly a test to see if this guy was as good at ferreting out information as he seemed to be, but also a play to hopefully allow Jeremy time to rest before getting down to business. It worked in both respects. The note left at the front desk of his hotel was plain enough to not arouse suspicion, but sent a clear message. Meet the contact here at 2330 in an upstairs booth in the back corner. Jeremy mounted the spiral stairs and made his way to the second level. It was quite different up here. The beat from the music below thumped up through the floor, but the background noise was quite a bit softer, allowing people to talk without having to shout to be heard. The lighting was lower, more intimate. Tables were set up all around the floor, with lit candles in the center of each. Ringing the room were booths that were separated from each other by high wooden walls that stretched nearly to the ceiling. Each booth area had a narrow entryway and a curtain that could be drawn, blocking out the rest of the room. It was easy to see why his contact had chosen to meet here. Jeremy made his way through the crowd, noticeably more sparse than the one downstairs, and toward the back. Several of their booths had their curtains drawn, but one in the right-hand corner in the back was partially open. Through the gap in the curtains, Jeremy saw a figure sitting there, waiting. Well, this must be it. Taking a deep breath, Jeremy slipped into the booth and pulled the curtain closed. The booth was gloomy, the candle on the table having been extinguished. The man across from him was tall, lean, with dark skin and short black hair. He was dressed simply, but his collared shirt was freshly pressed and seemed to be made of high-quality fabric. The contact nodded in greeting as Jeremy got settled, then pulled a small device out of his pocket, set it on the table, and pressed a small button on its top. Jeremy had seen that sort of thing before, a bug jammer. It would disrupt any electronic listening devices in the immediate area and make the voice and video recording functions in Jeremy's database and plant useless. The man obviously saw the look of chagrin on Jeremy's face as he chuckled softly. Sorry for the inconvenience, Mr. Reynolds, but I can't take the chance that you're bugged. And I don't want any records of this meeting, even if they're kept by someone as trustworthy as yourself. Jeremy thought he heard a hint of irony in the man's voice there at the end. You have some information for me? The man nodded. I was hoping to not have to meet you face to face. If things had gone differently, he cut himself off with a rueful shake of his head. But then I suppose we both underestimated how stubborn Joe can be. The familiar way the man spoke piqued Jeremy's curiosity. Ishikawa? I've met far tougher than her. Don't be so sure, Mr. Reynolds. She can be quite surprising. You talk as though you know her. The man grinned, white teeth shining plainly in the gloom. I know her better than most. In some ways, better than she knows herself. Jeremy shrugged noncommittally and waited for the man to get to the point. A soft chuckle said the man understood Jeremy's silence. He fished into another pocket and pulled out a portable television unit. 
again with a set of wired earbuds plugged into it. Setting it on the table, he pushed it across to Jeremy. You'll want to have a look at that. Curious, Jeremy put the earbuds into his ears, then picked up the device and pressed play. The video was obviously filmed on a handheld, since the image bounced around periodically, but it clearly showed a half-ring of five people, all dressed in the light blue coveralls the Steriliner crews wear when underway, armed with slug throwers and a pair of plasma rifles, facing a pressure door with a sixth, a woman, standing ahead of the others. Allison, are you filming? Jeremy recognized Captain Mishikawa's voice, and when the woman in front turned her head to look at the person filming, it was clearly her. Yes, answered a woman whose voice he didn't recognize, but he reasoned must be Allison Hirsch. All right, Malcolm, open the hatch. The camera moved over to a tall, dark-skinned band as he pressed his hand against the door controls. Jeremy blinked and pushed pause, his eyes flickering up to the man across the booth from him, the same man who was in the video. The same man who had been cremated a year and a half ago. Malcolm Ngubwe, he breathed. Ngubwe nodded, and Jeremy felt a shiver go up his spine. He pushed play again and looked back at the televid. The pressure door slid open, and Jeremy realized it was an airlock. He should have realized that from the start. His breath caught in his throat. What the hell was this he was watching? This couldn't be real, could it? On the video, four creatures dressed in loose gray jumpsuits waited in the airlock. They were short, powerfully built, and not human. They stood hunched on two legs, had two arms, but the resemblance to humans ended there. Even though they wore breathing masks, Jeremy could see they had features that made them look like cats, long snouts with sharp teeth and peaked ears atop their heads, short tails between their legs, but they weren't furry. Instead, their yellow-orange skin, streaked with green, shimmered as the creatures moved. Were they scaled? Was that it? Captain Mishikawa said, welcome aboard. And one of the aliens, they can only be aliens, moved its hand. Someone shouted, oh Jesus! And the distinctive sound of a plasma rifle being fired rang out. The alien that had moved was struck and collapsed back into the bulkhead. The video swung erratically as shouts ensued, along with a pair of menacing roars. It was hard to see what was going on. He heard Captain Mishikawa scream, No! Stop! The video stabilized and centered on Captain Mishikawa, one of the aliens gripping her by her throat as it held her a quarter of a meter off the deck. His free hand was drawn back to strike, and Jeremy could see vicious-looking claws protruding from the tips of its fingers. Don't shoot! ordered Captain Mishikawa in a strangled tone as she waved for her people to stand down. The video panned over to show a man Jeremy recognizes Carlton Hirsch slowly lowering a slug thrower. Past him, Ngubwe had another crew member pinned to the floor in a submission hold, a discarded plasma rifle lying on the deck nearby. The video moved back to Captain Ishikawa and showed the alien peering at her closely, then looking around at the other humans, particularly Ngubwe and the man he had pinned. Then, with a barking sound, it released her and retreated a step. She slumped, clutching at her throat and coughing, but waved away an offer of support from Hirsch. The next several minutes on the video showed the aliens tending to their wounded comrade and helping him... it... back through the airlock door, presumably to their ship. Then two more aliens walked in, pushing a large black device that hovered in the air. Hovered? How the hell did that work? The same alien who had earlier almost killed Captain Ishikawa now gestured for her to join it next to the device. She did, with obvious caution. The alien spent a moment showing her something on the side of the machine, some sort of control panel, Jeremy presumed, as it slowly lowered to the deck, then hovered, then lowered again as the alien touched different places. The camera holder moved to get a better angle, and Jeremy was able to see that the device was topped by a transparent cover, 
that appeared frosted over. The alien made a vocalization that was a mixture of a hiss and a bark and pressed something else on the controls. The cover cracked open, and a fog that resembled melting dry ice issued from the device. The alien opened the cover more fully and pulled out a small object. A bit larger than a baseball, it was leathery, orange-green in color, and wrinkled. The alien cradled the object close to its body and gave it a long, lingering, strangely gentle caress. Then, looking at Captain Ishikawa, the alien pressed its free hand to its belly. Allison Hirsch spoke, sounding almost shocked. An egg, she said. Jeremy heard at least one other crew member gasp. The alien replaced the egg into the device and closed the lid, which immediately frosted over again. Then it pulled a long black device out from behind its belt. It showed the device to Captain Ishikawa for a moment, then pressed it. A three-dimensional image appeared in the air above the device. Was that a hologram? That was amazing. Whatever it was, the image was clearly a star chart. It showed a flashing green dot and a curved yellow line going to a small star not far away. The alien pointed at the small star, and then a second line, this one blue, appeared, going from this star to a larger star system quite a bit further away. Then the alien pointed at Captain Mishikawa, laid its hand on the large device with the eggs, and finally pointed at the larger star system. Captain Mishikawa shook her head. Sir, we can't... The alien cut her off with a mixture of a growl and a whistle. Then it pointed again from her, to the egg machine, to the star. Captain Ishikawa sighed and nodded. Jerry couldn't believe what he was seeing. Had the alien just asked Captain Ishikawa to take its eggs back to their star system? Why? On the video, the alien touched the device in its hand again, and the star chart disappeared, replaced by an image of that same alien. Their captain, presumably talking in his alien language of barks, hisses, growls, and whistles. The alien only let the video go on for a short time before bringing up the star chart again and pointing at the distant star system. That had to be a message for the alien's brethren back home. The alien pressed on the device again and a single dot appeared with a strange symbol next to it. Then two dots appeared next to a different symbol. Then three, four, all the way up to eight. Then the symbols reappeared in various combinations along with other new symbols. Finally, what looked like an entire page of alien symbols appeared. The alien waved his hand through the page, and another page appeared, then another, and another. On the video, Jeremy heard Ngubwe's voice speaking in hushed awe. It's their mathematics. The image in the air blinked out, and the alien pointed first at the device in his hand, and then slowly to each human crew member in the room, even the man Ngubwe held pinned to the floor. Then it held the device out to Captain Mishikawa, who took it with an expression of trepidation. The alien then made another hiss bark, and its only remaining companion turned and walked back into the airlock. Once its companion was gone, the alien made a strange hand gesture and inclined its head to Captain Mishikawa. Then it too turned and walked out of the airlock. Jeremy heard a man's voice asking, where's he going? Then the video stopped. Jeremy pulled the earbuds out of his ears and they fell limply onto the table. Was what he just saw real? He looked up at Ngubwe, who stared at him with an earnest expression and said the only thing he could think to say. Holy shit. Chapter 9. Dangerous Knowledge They sat in silence for several minutes after the video ended. The enormity of what he had just seen weighed on Jeremy's mind like a cinder block around the ankles of a mob drowning victim. Finally, Ngubwe leaned forward over the table and broke the silence, speaking softly enough that his words barely made it to Jeremy's ears. Their ship was adrift, crippled. They managed to escape before it blew and made it over to us in a life pod. When they came aboard, they realized they couldn't survive on Pericles for long. 
Our gravitation and atmosphere were too different from theirs, so they gave us their eggs, a map of where to take them, and a message to explain what happened to their people. And they paid us with technical schematics and the mathematical means to translate them. Then they got back in their life pod and blew it up so they could die with dignity. Somehow, Jeremy figured the aliens' thought processes weren't exactly as Ngubwe had presented them, but he didn't press the matter. This is unbelievable. Why wasn't anyone told about this? It's, it's the biggest thing since... It's the biggest thing ever, Ngubwe finished for him. And he was right. A couple dozen colonized worlds and a hundred or so more that were at best marginal for sustaining human life had revealed a plethora of exotic flora and fauna, but no creatures that could be said to even come close to human intelligence. A few could give a great ape a run for its money, or a dolphin, but most were no more brainy than the average rabbit hopping down the bunny trail. Or whatever it was they really did. To actually meet intelligent beings, and beings who clearly were more advanced than humanity was, to say it was historic would be to say that the odds of surviving a fall from a 10,000 meters were unfavorable, which made it even more confusing that no one had been told about it. Then why... There is much more to tell, but we cannot talk about it here. Too many eyes and ears. Well, great, let's get out of here. Ngubwe shook his head. The people you need to meet are otherwise engaged tonight. Meet me tomorrow night, same time, at the train yards near the launch facility. Jeremy highly doubted the other people were actually unavailable. More likely, Ngubwe and his compatriots had planned this first meeting to size him up and try to determine if he was on the level before deciding to trust him fully. It was not so unusual. During the Grinmore corruption investigation, his primary source had required three separate meetings over the span of a month before he would even begin to give Jeremy the first hints of how deep the scandal went. Compared with that story, this was proceeding at light speed, and with a lot less expense. Jeremy nodded agreement. Ngubwe pushed himself to the end of the booth seat nearest the curtain and peeked out. Apparently satisfied, he took back the televid player and the bug jammer. He moved his thumb over the control switch, then paused, looking at Jeremy with serious eyes. Be very careful, Mr. Reynolds. This is more dangerous game than you know. You're probably being followed already. If not, you should assume that you will be and take precautions. There are people who will go to great lengths to stop this information from becoming public knowledge. Jeremy nodded, not bothering to remind Ngubwe that he was a professional, and he knew what he was doing. Besides, he was a journalist, and that afforded him a lot of legal protection. Ngubwe wouldn't appreciate hearing that, though. He clearly had faced a lot of heat, otherwise why fake his own death? Jeremy could understand him being a little bit paranoid. Ngubwe returned the nod. Until tomorrow night, then. With that, he turned off the bug jammer and slipped through the curtain. Jeremy remained in the booth for a long time, his thoughts racing. He had known there was something big hiding in the shadows, but this? This was not the story of the year. It was the story of the millennium. The Pulitzer would not be enough to express how important this story was, and he had the exclusive scoop. How the hell had no one thought to look into this before him? Granted, Pericles' arrival was not broadcast extensively back when it happened, but it had been two years. Jeremy could hardly believe his luck. He needed to call Lou and let him know this was not a wild goose chase. Maybe he'd be less pissed when he heard that. Jeremy tapped his thumb and ring fingers together, and his contact list appeared in his vision. A vertical list of names, complete with a thumbnail picture of the person's face beside each, and a blinking cursor next to the first one. Flicking his index finger down his thumb caused the cursor to scroll down the list until it stopped next to Lou. Jeremy hesitated, suddenly unsure what to tell him. This was not the sort of thing to just go blurting out on the phone, even if Ngubwe was wrong. 
but especially if he was right. Again, he cursed the bug jammer. If he'd been able to make a good recording, he could mail the video and audio to Lua's evidence. But without that, Jeremy shook his head and stood up from the booth seat. He would call Lou tomorrow night after the next meeting with Nguwe. The upstairs area was more crowded than it had been, to Jeremy's surprise. Then he noted the time and realized with surprise that it had been well over an hour since he slipped into the booth for the meeting. It had not felt that long. Jeremy's thoughts were still wandering as he descended the spiral staircase. He did not even notice the woman near the bottom of the stairs until she bumped into him, spilling her drink all down the front of his shirt. Oh, I'm so sorry, she exclaimed, a look of surprise that quickly turned to embarrassment on her face. She had a cocktail napkin in her hand and began dabbing at the fluid that was running down his torso. Jeremy gently pushed her hands away, grimacing in annoyance from the unexpected wetness and cold. It's okay, really. I'm such an idiot, she said, still looking and sounding distressed. Let me make it up to you. It suddenly registered with Jeremy that the woman was a knockout. Tall, only slightly shorter than he was, with lightly tanned skin, wavy dark brown hair past her shoulders, a slender and firm figure that was accentuated nicely by her dress, legs that never quit, and a lovely heart-shaped face and stunning eyes that sucked him in. Despite his annoyance at her clumsiness, he felt an instant attraction. It's really okay, miss. He let the sentence fade away into a question. Oh, I'm Jacqueline, but my friends call me Jackie. He shook her hand in greeting and was pleased to find her grip was firm, confident. Jeremy. Jeremy Reynolds. You sure I can't make it up to you? How about I buy you a drink? Any other time, Jeremy would leap at the offer. But he needed to collect his thoughts. Besides, tomorrow promised to be one hell of a day. He shook his head. Sorry, I've got work, but maybe... Jackie snorted, a teasing smile appearing on her face. All work and no play makes Jeremy a dull boy, she quipped. Come on, just one drink. I promise I won't bite. Hard. She was a little minx, wasn't she? Oh, what the hell. It's not like he was going to write any of this story right then and there. Or in the morning. Grinning, he nodded. Okay, one drink. But first, you need to find me a bigger napkin. Jackie laughed and, grasping his hand, led him toward the bar. It was shaping up to be one hell of a night indeed. Jeremy did not register much about the ride back to Jackie's place, except for her. The ride could have lasted for minutes or hours. Almost as soon as they shut the cab doors and entered the destination address, she was on him. Deep, forceful kisses, the likes of which he hadn't experienced in years. Freely roaming hands. Jackie teased him with a flash of skin. But when he tried for more, she demurred, gesturing to the cab's security cameras. By the time they arrived, he was mad with desire, ready to burst his pants. Jackie's flat was on the twelfth floor. They kissed and groped each other the entire way up the lift, then down the hall to her door. They spilled into her flat and he pressed her against the wall. As the door slid shut behind them, he cupped her breasts gently and moved his kisses to her neck. She moaned softly, and he found the zipper at the back of her dress. A quick tug, and the zipper came undone, allowing her dress to fall to the floor. Jeremy backed away a half-step to take in the view. She wore no bra. Her breasts were perfect. B-cups with small, perky nipples. She wore a black thong with a barely translucent front that hinted at what was there without revealing too much. For a short moment, he just looked at her, thinking he had to be dreaming. She was far and away the best-looking woman he had ever been with. Then, with a grin, he bent over and took her nipple into his mouth. She gasped, then mooned again, running her hands through his hair and holding his head in place. After a long few minutes, he moved to the other side, but she pushed him backwards. He stumbled, landing on the couch he hadn't even noticed when they came in. Slowly, she stepped out of her panties, revealing a short landing strip of brown hair between her legs. Then she bounded forward and landed on top of him. Her fierce kiss pressed him back against the couch, and she tore open his shirt, not even bothering with the buttons. 
She worked down his neck with kisses, then to his chest. She lingered on his nipples, giving him little flicks with her tongue, while she moved her hands down and began rubbing him through his pants. Now it was his turn to moan. A heartbeat later, she was kissing his belly while undoing his belt. Then she pulled his pants and boxers down to his knees. Gentle caresses had him gasping. Then she took him into her mouth, and it was all he could do not to explode right then. The things she was doing with her tongue. After what seemed an eternity, she slowly came up for air. He shuddered as her lips dragged over him. She grinned, swirling her tongue around and getting yet another moan in response. It wasn't going to last if she kept this up much longer. Are you ready? She asked in a sultry tone. He nodded eagerly, and she gave him a little kiss. Then her gaze moved from his face to something behind him, and she nodded. Suddenly, a gloved hand clamped over his mouth, and he felt cold metal press against the side of his neck. Ecstasy turned to panic in a heartbeat. He saw Jackie back away, then he felt a burning line draw across his throat. His hands went reflexively to the wound, but his lifeblood spurted out regardless. He flailed on the couch, but couldn't move far with his legs entangled as they were. He tried to cough as blood began filling his lungs, but was unable to manage it. Why? He mouthed the word as the room began to grow dim, the sounds incomprehensible. He could vaguely make out Jackie calmly getting dressed and speaking to someone out of view. Then everything went black. Well, that escalated quickly. Most folks uh, have actually uh, liked this book a lot, the folks who have read it. But I have occasionally, every now and then, get a comment about that last scene about uh, where Jeremy gets whacked. And uh, maybe I did go a little blatant. And maybe, I don't know, it... <laughs> I don't know, I got that scene in my head and I just, just had to write it down, you know? And and uh, when it came time to edit and trim, it's like, ah, maybe could have trimmed that back and just had him get killed or maybe not have Agent Moore. I assume you guys figured out that that's who that was. Uh, go quite so all in <laughs> on the distraction. But, damn it. No, I just liked how that, I just liked doing that, because I guess I'm twisted. Uh, so, hey, poor Jeremy. Um, I'm not sure how many, a lot of people, a couple of people told me they saw that coming up when they were reading the book, too. I don't know if you, any of you guys did, but, uh, yeah, alas, I knew him well, poor Jeremy. He hath borne me on his back a thousand times, but now he's out. Um... Yeah, not much else to say there. But those of you who uh, read or stuck with me through the reading of Passing in the Night already knew the content of that video, but uh, tell me how you think about how I worked it in. I, I kind of like how I, I did that in the in the, the, the bar scene with Malcolm there. Um, but now that Jeremy's out of the picture, Malcolm's plan apparently is going to be all jacked up so i guess we'll have to see what he does next um and what goes on with joe if anything but to do that you'll have to come back next week for by the book you know where to go come on my sites either of my sites like kingswood.com or ssnstorytelling.com go to the bookstore link you can buy it and print an ebook straight from me you can also go to Amazon and all those other places and buy, get it there, too. I just get less money that way. Um, but, you know, up to you. 
Roger's come back next week. Tell everybody, like, subscribe, share what we're doing here. Um, come by the website, sign up for the mailing list so you can hear more about uh, new releases as soon as I <laughs> am re ready to uh, tell everybody. Or become a member of the website. Uh, a buck or two a month to compensate for the time spent uh, doing these podcasts and readings and editing and all that stuff. It does take time. Time is money. If you want to hook a brother up, that'd be awesome. But uh, as always, I won't begrudge you if you just come back. And we'll uh, talk again next week. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. I'll see you then. Till then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mail list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music, copyright Gene Paul Zoggy, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>